0: Good evening, and I want to start by apologizing for my voice. I'm recovering from a cold and at the age of 85, I have an old man's voice. It is not as strong as it used to be, but I hope you can understand me and hear me. If you can't hear me at any point, then just raise your hand. That applies to those of you, of course, who are listening in English. Uh, Those who are listening in Dutch will obviously have a separate source of information. Now, uh, let me first of all thank the Logos Institute for their kindness in arranging this meeting, a meeting that is going to allow me, I trust, to share with you something of my own excitement over this book. Well, now, as the author, you might say, he would say that, wouldn't he? But, in fact, I think this is an exciting subject because it is a subject that is always new, that is always present in the minds of human beings. And um, I have been asked uh, tonight to talk about the first human beings, about Adam and Eve. And I'm going to do that, uh, although before I do it, I want to put the subject of the historicity or historical reality of Adam and Eve in the context of the book I have written. My thanks must also go to Eddie Martkamp, of course, who is the person in a way responsible for our uh, meeting tonight. Um, He has been a tremendous source of support and encouragement throughout the time I've been writing this book. And indeed, throughout the time I was writing my earlier book entitled, Who Made God? And if you haven't come across that book, then I would strongly encourage you to take up Eddie's offer Of buying both books for the price of 25 euros. It's a bargain. Anyway, uh, that's the commercial. Uh, I'll go on from there. Um, Finally, I'm sorry I cannot address you in your own language. Uh, The only Dutch I know is Sprichel Engels, (laughs) alstublieft. And I either get a blank stare when I say that or I get a shake of the head. So <clears throat> I'm very grateful to uh, Frans uh, Gunink, who's going to translate into Dutch for those of you who don't understand English. 3,000 years ago, the psalmist David asked a question. And that question is the one that is the title of the book. What is man? He, he was speaking to God. He was writing the uh, eighth psalm. And he, he says to God, what is man that you are mindful of him? Uh, or the son of man that you, you visit him, that you care for him or are concerned about him? And that question has echoed down the millennia and down the centuries. And it is still a live issue today. Now fast forward uh, to 300 years ago, was written 3000 years ago, 300 years ago, (coughs) a British poet called Alexander Pope uh, thought he had found the answer and he wrote a poem entitled, The Proper Study of Mankind is a Man. And he reached this conclusion. Man, he said, is the glory of the world. He is the jest of the world, which means joke. And he is the riddle of the world, which means puzzle. <coughs> man is the glory, the jest and riddle of the world. And he thought he was answering the question. Uh, But of course he wasn't answering the question at all. But he was giving us uh, an analysis of the human condition which was very helpful. He was in a sense restating the question What is man? Well, man is the glory of the world because of his attainments, because of the things he has achieved, uh, the things that he can do. And far more of those are evident today than they were 300 years ago. Man is the glory of the world. Uh, There is no other animal, there is no other creature or created thing that can match the attainments of humanity. But then man is the jest the or the joke of the world. He's the glory of the world because of his attainments. He is the joke of the world because of his abysmal failure. We are failures as individual human beings. We do not live up to the standards that we set ourselves. We are failures in society, we can never agree or or, or be happy, we're always fighting one another in one sense or another. We are failures nationally and internationally. It's a great joke. The condition of humanity is a very low condition. And therefore Man is the riddle or puzzle of the world because of the complete contradiction between his attainments and his failures. And I say that's a good analysis of the human condition because it tells us that there is something really strange about mankind that it can reach up to the very heights, that it can sink to the greatest depth. This is not something that is typical of the animal kingdom. Now, why is it? Well, the psalmist answered his own question. Having said, what is man, that you are mindful of him, and the son of man, that you visit him, Uh, He goes on to say, you have made him a little lower, or I believe the real meaning of that is for a little while lower than the angels. And you have crowned him with glory and honor and put him, set him over the works of your hands. In other words, God had a purpose for creating man according to David 3,000 years ago, he had a purpose for creating man. Uh, He had a future for man, designed and planned. And man was therefore something very special in the eyes of God, and still is, according to the Bible. Well now, Western society generally (coughs) has in our own day at least, embraced the challenge of David's question. But they have rejected the simplicity of his answer. And they have turned instead from an answer that involves the creative power of God uh, to answers they are trying to generate from within their own knowledge base. And so we have, we have people seeking an answer to the question, what is man, in cosmology. We have people seeking an answer to the question in biology. We have people seeking the answer in psychology. But they have turned their backs completely upon any answer that involves theology. And, and that is the a situation, a situation we face in the mass media, in popular books, uh, even in our schools and universities, these things are taught. In con- cosmology we are told <coughs> that God was not responsible for the creation of the universe. Now it's very interesting that uh, some of the modern atheistic uh, scientists who are very well known and very popular uh, have decided that yes, the universe did have a beginning. They've come round to that. They denied it for hundreds of years, but, but the very facts of cosmology have driven them to the conclusion that yes, the universe had a beginning. Uh, But of course, they will not allow God to have anything to do with that. And let me quote you the words of um, Stephen Hawking, very famous cosmologist, also an atheist. And he writes in a recent book that because there is a law like gravity, the universe will and did create itself. There was no need for God to light the blue touch paper and set it going. And and that, I think, expresses this view that the cosmology tells us absolutely nothing about God. And therefore... What it does tell us is that the universe itself is an accident and everything within the universe is therefore just an accident. And that includes us, includes human beings. And according to this view, humanity is like a piece of driftwood thrown up upon the shores of time an accident without meaning, without purpose, without significance, and without a future. And what applies to humanity as a whole applies to you and to me, (coughs) each one of us. They are, in fact, seeking a, a very nihilistic, or promoting a very nihilistic view of man a very negative answer to the question, what is man, by studying the cosmos. Uh, Others have sought the answer to the question in biology. And there, uh, perhaps more familiarly, we are told that man is simply an evolved ape. Uh, Man has come into existence uh, quite by accident uh, as a consequence of Darwinian common descent. That is all life has derived from some single accidental life form. And we are the products of millions of years of evolution. Uh, We are just animals. Superior animals, perhaps, but animals nevertheless. And this is a very depressing view in my mind. They say it's a realistic view, but I say it's a depressing view. And and let me uh, explain just one of the things that I have to say in the book about this. What they teach is that Man and chimpanzees had a common ancestor some six to 13 million years ago. Depends on who you talk to, how long it was, but nevertheless, uh, we derived from a common ancestor. So there was this common ancestor, uh, or perhaps I should start at the bottom, common ancestor, and then there were two branches one leading to chimpanzees, and the other leading to human beings. And then they tell us that the mutation rate, and it's mutations that are supposed to drive the process of evolution, the mutation rate for the the chimpanzee branch was 50% greater than the mutation rate for the human branch. So, uh, chimpanzees really had had 50% advantage in their opportunities to evolve. At least, they had the same opportunity as man. So here are these two branches going their separate ways, evolving at the same rate. And when you ask people, well, what was the common ancestor? Technically, it's the last common ancestor, LCA. What was the last common ancestor like? What kind of a creature was it? Well, nobody knows, of course. But they hum and they har, and they say, well, it was probably rather like a chimpanzee. And uh, at that point, my mind stops and says, well, just a moment. That doesn't seem right. Here are two branches evolving at exactly the same speed. And yet one stays virtually where it was. And the other develops in such a way that it builds zoos to accommodate chimpanzees. And chimpanzees do not build zoos to accommodate human beings. So there's something wrong here. And the illustration I like to use is this. (coughs) Imagine a horse race. We've got six horses in the starting gates, and they represent six great apes, shall we say. <clears throat> and all is ready, and the starter gives the signal, the gates go up, and the horses set off on the race. But only if one horse runs down the course towards the finishing line. The other five horses just stand around the starting gate nibbling the grass. Well, now if that happened in a human horse race (laughs) or in a a regular horse race, you'd say there's something fixed here. The race has been fixed. This shouldn't happen. And yet that is exactly what we're being told happened in the development, respectively, of chimpanzees and human beings. Now, human beings are not animals. They're not just superior apes. They are far more than the biological answer to the question allows. Well then, of course, uh, some are looking for the answer uh, to the question, who, who is man? in psychology, not cosmology, not biology, but in psychology. And they are making an intense study of the human brain. And they have arrived at the idea that the human brain is the only mental reality But all the thoughts and ideas and emotions and desires and self knowledge and ambitions that we have, all these things which are found in the realm of the mind, they're not real at all. They're just a byproduct, an emanation, if you like, from the physical organ called the brain. And therefore, we can't rely upon our thinking. We are, in fact, machines driven by selfish genes. Those genes have given rise to the development of the organ we call the brain, the physical organ, and that organ uh, runs the show. Now... I think instinctively we know that cannot be true. But that is modern wisdom. That that is the the forefront of of psychological research and knowledge that forget mind, the brain is everything. And if we study the brain enough, we shall discover an answer to the question, what is man? (coughs) Uh, One philosopher made, I think, a very helpful comment on that opinion. He said, we could know everything that it is possible to know about the physical properties of a bat's brain, the brain of a bat, flitter mouse, okay. We could know everything possible about the the brain of a, a, a bat and yet have no idea, what it's like to be a bat. Uh, And I think that was a very perceptive comment because the things that are going on in our brains, the electrical impulses, the chemical flow, uh, the firing of, of, um, uh, of the brain cells, these things don't have opinions. They don't have ideas. They are just physical processes, physics and chemistry. They cannot possibly account for the existence of the human mind. And of course, the psalmist really has answered this question. He says, no, look, you're never going to find the answer to this question until you recognize that God has made us that we are the work not of an evolutionary process, not of a cosmic accident, uh, not of uh, a set of of genes in our brains, but we are the work of a creator, God. Those are the things that matter. Those are the things that actually provide answers to our question and so we come back to what the Bible teaches and we come back to Adam and Eve and the rest of my time I have to say something about Adam and Eve. (coughs) Why should we believe that Adam and Eve actually existed? (coughs) Why should we think that they are characters of history and not of mythology? Well, I want to give you two or three reasons. First of all, if Adam and Eve never existed, then there is no such thing as the image of God in human beings. You see in the opening chapters of of the book of Genesis, we're told that God made man in his own image. God made the male and female in his own image, in his own likeness. If Adam and Eve therefore didn't exist, then God could not have endowed them with his image. And so you've got to have either the real existence of Adam and Eve and the reality of the image of God in man, or else you have no Adam and Eve and you have no image of God. You can't have one without the other. And yet you see, it is the image of God in man that makes man different from the animals. Without that image, we are simply glorified apes. We are simply over evolved apes, but we are just apes. But if we bear (coughs) the image of God, it means that we share some of the characteristics of God, some of the attributes of God. Now, we can't share all his attributes, otherwise we would be God. We can't share his omnipotence, his omnipresence, his knowledge that is total, his omniscience, Those are things we cannot share. We cannot share his self-existence. There are things about God that we cannot share. They are what the theologians call incommunicable. They cannot be communicated to man. But on the other hand, there are things about God that can be communicated to man. And it is in the communication of these things that the image of God in man consists. Uh, For example, we, we have spirits. Soul and spirit are derivative from God. They are attributes of God that can be and are bestowed upon man. Animals don't have spirits. They are not souls. They are just animals. We have what I call language in the book, in the book I go through this in some detail, uh, what I call language and logic. We have the capacity to use language, to formulate thoughts in words and to express those thoughts. The animals don't have that ability. And by logic, I mean not simply formal logic or mathematical logic. I'm talking about the entire operation of our minds. The fact that we can think and reason. The fact that we have the ability to to conceive of and think about things that we're not looking at or things even that don't exist We can think about them. Uh, We have that uh, ability to formulate ideas and thoughts about things that may not even exist. Uh, This is an ability that no animal possesses. Animals have some very marvelous instincts, don't they? Tremendously impressive instinctive behavior uh, is often observed in animals, but it is just that, instinctive. It's hardwired into their, into their nature. But this ability to, to, to think um, and to reason and to plan and to conceive ideas, that is something that is the image of God in man and it is unknown in any other creature. And so we could go on the ability of language to communicate with one another, to communicate with God. These are abilities (coughs) that chickens or or chimpanzees do not possess. Uh, And we have the capacity to, to obey law. Law and love, you know, go together. We have a capacity to love and the capacity to set standards and to, and to live up to those standards, or know that we're not living up to those standards. Again, these are things, these moral dimensions that animals do not have. Well then, secondly, that was the image of God in man. Uh, Secondly, (coughs) secondly, the fact that Adam and Eve lived means that it is possible to define sin. Now, this is the darker side of our question. I I expect most of you are familiar with the concept (coughs) of quality control. Uh, That a factory, for example, that manufactures cameras or cups and saucers, they have a standard uh, which they set, uh, a standard of quality. They actually have examples. They say this is what every cup ought to be like. It ought to be up to this standard. Every camera ought to meet the same standard as this is the ideal camera. You put it on, on a, a pedestal, as it were. Uh, we write the specification and we say every bit of equipment that we produce uh, has got to meet that standard and if it doesn't meet that standard falls below the quality control criteria then <coughs> it's either sold off as a second or it's it's thrown out altogether. Standards are set quality control is set. Now, if you didn't have the standard, you could have no quality control. If you did not have the ideal cup or the ideal camera, then if you make another camera and say, well, does this meet the quality control criteria? Uh, The answer is, well, I don't know because I don't know what those criteria are. Now apply this to human behavior. If there was no real historical, actual Adam and Eve, then there is no standard against which to measure human behavior. <clears throat> now, the Bible teaches, of course, that Adam and Eve were created perfect. When God created, according to the book of Genesis, the first chapter, when God created all things, uh, but before he created man, he, he saw everything he had made and it was good. He pronounced it good. Then he created Adam and Eve and he saw everything that he had created and made and he called it very good. So there was... <clears throat> an increase in goodness, if you like, when Adam and Eve were created. They were created innocent. They were created as perfect moral beings in the image of God. But, as we well know, the Bible says they used the free will that God had endowed them with to rebel against God, to disobey God to walk out on God, as it were. And that was sin, and it was the cause of them being driven out of the presence of God. Now, if there was no Adam and Eve before the fall, if Adam and Eve are simply fictional characters, then there is no fall, and we have absolutely no criterion for sin. We have no way of defining what sin means. And those of you who know your Bibles or think about these things will recognize that that drives a coach and horses uh, through the whole Christian message. For the New Testament declares the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 3. It declares that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everyone, every human being, no matter how good they are, no matter how bad they are, they come short, they fall short of God's standard, Of quality control now if there was no Adam and Eve there is no quality control and there is no such thing as sin which is exactly the position for the animals when your dog walks in with muddy paws and leaves footprints right across the floor you don't accuse it of sin you try to teach it to wipe its feet next time but but you don't have any moral indignation against the dog. Why? Because it's not capable of sin because God has not set a moral standard for dogs. But he has set a moral standard for man. But if Adam and Eve didn't exist, he hasn't. And we are exactly in the same position as an animal when it comes to moral behavior. We're not responsible. We're not moral creatures, but the Bible says we are because we're made in the image of God. And then finally, this is the last thing I have time to say. If Adam and Eve did not exist, and if they were not the sole progenitors of the human race, then... We have no part in their sin, but if we have descended from Adam and Eve, if we are Adam and Eve's children, a number of things follow. First of all, every single member of the human race is a relation of yours and mine. You don't have to send them birthday cards, of course, but nevertheless, they are relations. You are related to them. You've all got the same grandparents removed however many times. And that means there is no place in God's economy for racism, for sexism, for ageism, or any other kind of ism that sets one human being above another either physically, biologically, or morally. We're all in this together, and therefore we have no way, no reason, no cause to boast ourselves over another person. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. We're all in the same boat. We're all under the same judgment, because you see, Unfortunately for us, the pass mark in God's final judgment examination is 100%. And even if you get 98%, you're no nearer meeting his requirements, his standard, than if you only get 28% like driving a car, isn't it? If the speed limit is um, 100 kilometers per hour, if you drive at 102 kilometers per hour, you've broken the speed limit, you're a criminal. And if you drive at 150 kilometers per hour, uh, you're a criminal, you've broken the law. And so we are all in the same boat. We are all in the same position. And says the New Testament, all of us, every single one of us, will stand before the judgment seat of Christ to receive the things done in the body, whether they be good or bad. But there is a positive side to that. For we are told this. In um, well we had Romans five read to us. I'm going to turn to one Corinthians, uh, fifteen. Now uh, we read this. Paul is writing about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> but now in Christ is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, died, that is. For, this is the key point, since by man, that is Adam, came death, by man also, that is Christ, came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so, in Christ, all shall be made alive. Now, he's talking about those who are in Christ. When he talks about all, he's not talking about every human being. But this is my point. Unless we identify with Adam in his sin, then we cannot identify with Christ in his resurrection and in the salvation that he offers to those who put their trust in him. He said himself that he came into the world not to save the righteous, because there aren't any, uh, but uh, to save sinners. He came into the world not to seek the righteous, but sinners, that they might repent, believe on him, and receive from him the gift of eternal life. That is the message of the Bible and that message is eliminated, in my view, if there was not a real historical Adam and Eve. Well, I've run out of time and uh, almost run out of voice. So we'll leave it at there. I've got another shorter talk to give you later on, but I believe we now have a, a break for refreshments.